0: life, both its source, its abundance, and the possibility of eternal life has captured the imagination of human beings since recorded history began. And one of the main metaphors for life, and actually death if you want to get technical, um, over time, cross cultures, has been water. From the 5th century BC, Herodotus writes of the fountain of youth in India that would grant eternal life and people would spend their, their fame and fortune trying to find this fountain of youth. In the 11th and 12th centuries, this myth or story was recirculated to, by the crusaders who thought they could find it in the Holy Land. And of course, for us, the most common story is probably the 16th century Ponce de Leon who came all the way to Florida to try and find the Fountain of Youth. And I was just thinking about, I wonder if it's just be populated by very young alligators or something. But he, uh, he never found it. Um, water, as a symbol for life and death, predates all of these stories of Herodotus even in the 5th century B.C. Because nearly every creation story from the ancient world involves water. And many of these stories talk about life itself originating from the waters of chaos, for example. And in the biblical creation story, God's spirit hovers over the waters. Right. Um, Placing boundaries on the sky and air and land and sea over all created things. And he parts the waters and dry land comes up and it's a home for plants and animals and his image bearers, which are human beings. Ancient Egyptians had a particular veneration for water. After all, it was water that played the most important role in forming Egyptian civilization and Egyptian religion. So I want to go back in time before we hit the text today. We're gonna go back roughly 7,000 years to about 5,000 BC. And Kyle's gonna throw a map up there real quick. And this is kind of Egypt how it looks today on a geographical map. And we see Lake Nasser and it runs north and it spills out into the Mediterranean Sea. That's of course the Nile River, the life-giving Nile. And you'll see all the cities are along the Nile River. And also what you'll notice is that west of the Nile is all desert. It wasn't like that 5,000 years ago. The fossil record is very clear that nomadic uh, herders of cattle roamed those lands, that they were lush grasslands and that had a regular season of rain that would fall on those western deserts. Now what happened is about 5,000 BC to 3,600, the weather pattern shifted such that in 3,600 BC, rain no longer fell on that western area it became desert and i think that that is significant for three reasons one as resources became more and more scarce tribes that would pretty much stay away from each other began to fortify themselves they would build walls around their cattle and then they would start to raid each other for precious resources okay So what happened was, it used to be uh, the person in charge of a tribe was the wise elder, okay? And he was often uh, associated with healing. When this started to happen, and tribes became more warlike, the qualifications for leader became warrior first, then wise and healer later on, okay? Second, people moved where the water was. They're smart, By 3600 BC, roughly 99% of Egyptian people lived within a two-hour walk of the Nile River. The Nile became the center of Egypt's creation story and was viewed as divine, as a god in itself. Third, the massive migration of people to one central location meant that a strong central government uh, began to be important before they had all these tribal leaders but once everyone started moving into one place a strong leader arose and what happened was this leader kind of came up with the creation story so what happened is they believed that the creator was the nile the source of life and from the nile river rose land and on the land the first being that was there is this dude named atom not adam atum a-t-u-m and he was also the first king of Egypt. And so this is convenient if you're a, a current king of Egypt. Everyone who descended and became a king was also divine, just like Adam. Now that's convenient if you're the ruler of all these people because they had to do what you said. You are the, the king, the source of life. Okay, now here's a picture of a pharaoh. And we looked at this last week and we saw that uh, one of the signs... Of Leadership was the shepherd's staff that looks like that long putter in his right hand, and that was actually uh, a stylized shepherd's crook. That symbol means ruler. Uh, we talked about that last week. This week, I want you to look at Pharaoh's left hand, and that symbol is called an ankh ankh, ankh, and it is a hieroglyph that means life. And so, it was believed that the Pharaoh was connected with the Nile and actually. Um, had the key of life, that onk is known as the key of life. So he who controls life controls everything. And that, I just wanted to paint the backdrop for our scripture this evening. Um, We're going to read the first three plagues in Exodus, but I'm going to just start with the first one, and it's out of Exodus 7, verses 14 uh, through 25. There's a lot of reading, so you don't have to stand, just listen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened even until now. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff in my hand, and it will turn to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt and over the rivers and over their streams and over their pools and over all the reservoirs of their water that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in wood and stone. And Moses said to Aaron, and even did as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the staff and he struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of all his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the river. And the blood was through the land of Egypt. But the magicians, the sorcerers of Egypt, did the same thing with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern for this. For all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. The seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. We better pray. This is weird stuff. Uh, I'm going to say that a lot, because these plagues are weird, and this is strange stuff. I mean, yeah, if you've read this stuff before, you might just read over it and think, oh, yeah, this is in the Bible. It's a Bible story. But when you actually think, did this happen? This is weird. Um, Yeah, so Lord, we pray for your help in understanding what it is that happened, what it is that you're trying to communicate to us today, and why it matters. Thank you that your word still speaks, no matter if it's weird plague texts or the, or the stories of Jesus or the letters of Paul. Um, help us to be open to what you have to say. Amen. So, God commands Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh. They're to go meet him outside by the river, right by the life-giving Nile, okay? And they're going to relay a message from God. Listen, We had this encounter, remember the staff, how my staff ate your staff, and um, you refused to let the people go. Um, I want to let you know that because you did that, there's going to be trouble. I'm going to touch this with the same staff, and the water's going to turn to blood. In the sight of Pharaoh, the Nile is turned to blood. The fish in the river die, it becomes foul, smelling, and unable to be consumed. (laughs) Gross, right? Like river of blood reservoirs of blood canals of blood what on earth is going on here it seems to me there's a few important questions at least these are the ones that i want to know how did this happen and what exactly happened and maybe the most important question why did this happen what is the meaning of this event as we address these questions it's important to remember what type of material we're dealing with, what type of text we're dealing with. The Exodus account is not a blow-by-blow history in the way that we're used to understanding history. It's not like a textbook that you would get in sixth grade on ancient history or something like that. Overall, the book of Exodus is theology. It includes different genres in that one book, like poetry and history and theology, prophecy and law. The Exodus is given to us so that the people of Israel and today the people of God in Christ would come to know who God is and who they are, part of his story. In fact, it wasn't until the modern era that the question, how did this happen, was, a, was something that would even bother people. The reality is, as modern people, it's probably the first question that we want to know. Now scholars have gone to great lengths to try and explain the plagues. And probably the most famous is the work of 20th century literary literary scholar, Greta Hort. Hort came up with this elaborate thesis that the Nile turned red because of an uh, an exceptionally large like red tide bloom. And what happened is, of course, that the fish died and it became foul and red and nasty. And so what happened is, of course, the next plague is the frogs. And so the frogs didn't want to live in there. So they all jumped out of the river. And then they died on the land, and in their rotting little froggy bodies, they emerged all of these flies. And the flies came out and caused all these... So Hort's thesis is that all of these plagues are caused by natural causes. The problem, as that thesis is presented, is that these events would take months and months and months to germinate and take to, to happen this way. And the text just doesn't read that way. It reads a lot more succinctly. Plus, it wouldn't be that much of a sign to Pharaoh if these things happened all the time naturally anyway, and it wouldn't make sense for the magicians to do these things with their secret arts if there wasn't anything special about these natural occurrences. The whole theological punch of the text is that God did these things, and he did them to the Egyptians, not to the Israelites. All in all, Greta Hort's thesis has too many holes for most scholars today to find credible. But it does raise another question. Is this any less a miracle if God used naturally occurring phenomena for his purposes? I don't, think it's, I don't think it is any less a miracle. The point isn't that God was doing something that had never been done before or had never happened before. The point is that when God tells creation to jump, creation says how high. That God has ultimate sovereignty and authority over the things that he's created. He's shown as master over creation. So whether he turns water to literal blood, which, you know, like red blood cells and plasma and all that stuff that phlebotomy people know about, Ian. Um, Or if he turned it to a red-like substance that turned everything foul, the point is that God did it right in front of Pharaoh and it was supernatural. Like it, it wasn't just like Moses waited until the water turned bloody and then he came over to Pharaoh and said, hey, guess what? God did that. Like, the water was fine. He said, God's going to do this, and then it turned nasty. That's the point of the story. Now, the most important question. What on earth does this mean? We've already talked about how the Egyptians saw the Nile as a god. That god's name was Happy, not like H-A-P-P-Y, but H-A-P-I. And here's a photo of Happy. And you'll see Happy's an interesting-looking person, because he has the Ankh in his hand, right? So that's the sign of the Nile, the sign of life. And he's got these reeds out of his headpiece there. And that's the sign for uh, for Lower Egypt, which was where the capital was for much of Egyptian history. And he's got, like, strapping body of a man with some parts of a woman up there up top. And the, the idea is that he's got this power and virility, and yet um, this fertile side and he's a life giver so he's strength and he's life giver all in one the symbol of life the clear meaning of this affront on the nile river is that yahweh the god of the hebrews is superior to the egyptian god of life basically he's saying you think life comes from the river but i control the river that raises another question. If that was God's point, just to say, like, I'm, I'm sovereign over the river, why the sign of blood? Don't you think that's a little strange? Why blood? Couldn't God have shown his authority over this happy guy by freezing the river? That would have been kind of cool. Like, that would never happen in Egypt, right? Like, freezing Nile River. Or, <coughs> or he could have dried it up. That would have been, like, very scary for people that depended on the water. Or you could have put, like, oil rigs in it or something like that. Like, you could have screwed it up in a lot of different ways. Why blood? I think there's two reasons for the blood. First, I told you that Happy was the god of the Nile. In reality, there were two gods associated with the river. When the Nile flooded each year, it brought annual irrigation. It flooded the banks and brought all this wonderful, life-giving silt, fertile soil. That was Happy's job and it it, it covered the land, and that's why Egypt is so fertile around the Nile, but each year the cycle also saw the river draw down, and that was Osiris's job, and Ian's got a picture there of Osiris. Osiris is a god, and shown with the shepherd's crook there, and the flail there, that's like to get the flies off his back, it's also a sign of like, I'm in charge, (laughs) and Osiris was the god that That would see the Nile down to its death, and every year, it was believed that Osiris would come back to life. Not quite a resurrection, as we understand it, but a resuscitation. And Osiris was the God that would bring that river back up, and then Happy would take it from there and bring it over the banks. And so what I think, one of the reasons for the blood, is Yahweh is saying, I'm putting a stop to that. I've just assassinated your Osiris, the river is under my command. It is not these gods and these cycles that you think. The second reason I think God shows blood is because this river is desecrated. Yahweh is the God of life. His call over humans, over all creation, is to be fruitful and multiply. And he chose Israel back in Genesis 12 to be fruitful and to be abundant, full of life, And do you a blessing to the world? And Egypt and her pharaoh had tried to get in the way of God's mission of life. Generations earlier, the pharaoh had ordered all the firstborn sons of the Israelites to be thrown where? Mm. Where? Into the Nile River. You see the, the connection here. They've thrown these children of God into the river, ironically, that they believed was the source of all life. And in this plague, I believe the Nile must give up the blood of the lost. God has not forgotten his people. He is the God of life. Well, as the story goes, Pharaoh is unconcerned. He went back to his fancy palace. He's got servants who can dig down outside of the Nile, down to the water table and get fresh water for him to drink. Plague lasts seven days, kind of a homage to creation. And then it's over. And we get the next round. Reading out of Exodus 8. One, and I'm just going to go the the next two plagues so to 8.19. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs which will come up. And go into your house, and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants, and on all your people, in your ovens and kneading bowls, so the frogs will come up on you and your people, and all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, make frogs come up over the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same thing with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, the honor's all yours to tell me, when shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed in you and your houses, that they be left from the Nile. And then Pharaoh said, tomorrow. So he said, well, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they'll be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did According to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out in the houses and the courts and the fields, so they piled up in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he didn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast, and all the dust of the earth became gnats through the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of a god. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had. the pattern it continues god tells moses and aaron to confront pharaoh this time at his palace they come with a warning let the people go to serve yahweh or we're going to unleash the next wave frogs in this story frogs are another warning to pharaoh that he's not just messing with some tribal deity he's opposing the living god of the universe This gets me wondering, though, just like the blood in the river. Why, God, did you choose frogs? Like, what about scorpions? That would be more effective. Or what about, like, creepy clown dolls that come to life with one arm? They didn't have those back then, but that would certainly get the point across to me more than frogs. I like frogs. All right. (coughs) Again, the answer can be found, I think, in the statement that God is trying to make. While frogs in your bed and in your kitchen and in your Toilet seat may be annoying. The real statement is in what these frogs represented. Egypt was known as a place of abundance. And sandwiched between the deserts and the mountains, the Nile Valley had year-round water, consistent sunshine, and because it was a major trade route, it had lots of money. It was a place known for its fertility. And Pharaoh was praised for the fertility of his kingdom, When the land did well, which was almost every year, Pharaoh was praised. He was seen as the focal point of all life. And one of the gods he would uh, consult frequently for help was the goddess Heket. She was the goddess of fertility. And this is what she looked like. You know, it's the anks, right? The, The symbol of life, the cross with the loop on top. And she's kneeling before Pharaoh there. It looks like a woman except for her face. And her hands and her feet are the hands and feet and face of a frog. Isn't that interesting? The idea is this. Pharaoh thinks he has dominion over the life-giving Nile and over fertility. In reality, Yahweh is saying, I am the only life-giver. Pharaoh just happens to be living on one of the most fertile places on my earth that I created. And he's taking credit for it, but it's mine. And instead of taking away life, God shows Pharaoh, you can't contain life. You think you can control fertility. Let me show you something about fertility. Bam, the land is literally teeming with frogs. Teeming is a word that comes out of Genesis 1, how the land is teeming with life when God creates it. You know, in that Genesis account, God doesn't just create life and just let it go crazy. He creates boundaries for things, water and land and people and animals, sky, heavens. And here he's saying, you're dabbling with things you have no idea about. Let me show you about life and what happens if it's unbounded. And these frogs, kind of a spoof on this goddess Hecate, just come bursting out. More frogs than they had ever seen before in all of their living spaces. magicians, now I, this is a weird one, so they do the same thing with their secret arts, I guess to show that they're powerful too. If frogs are everywhere, I don't know where they, like do they clear a space out? Okay, none none of God's frogs. Okay, now we're going to make frogs. I don't know. Kind of interesting. What I find amusing is that here the land is covered with these annoying frogs and all Pharaoh's people can do is make more of a problem, (laughs) like more frogs. You'd think if they were that powerful, they would get rid of the frogs, right? Anyway, I just think that's funny. Um, (coughs) But Pharaoh is not fooled. Even though his magicians can make frogs, he knows he's out of his element. And to, his surpri- or to my surprise, Pharaoh asks Moses for help. He asks him to pray to God for him, to intercede. At this point, he's willing to concede that he needs help from the God who caused this issue. So Moses gives Pharaoh the privilege of naming the time w- when he wants this plague to lift. So that Pharaoh will know that the frogs are gone on account of God and not by random chance. God answers Moses' prayer. The frogs die, which is kind of funny how he leaves them in these stinking heaps, like a little bit of a reminder who's boss. But anyway, um, the nuisance is gone. And then what happens is, like we often do when we get in trouble when we're kids, uh, you know, we get in trouble, we get caught or whatever. And then once the danger's over, we go back to our old ways. Not that I ever did that. I'm just saying some kids I've seen. But but that's, this is what Moses or what Pharaoh does is he hardens his heart again. Dangers out of the way. Heart hard. So without warning, the Lord sends a third plague. This time, Aaron takes his staff, strikes the dust of the earth, poof, dust in the air, and all of a sudden, all of these tiny specks of dust become gnats that fill the land. Some people say, uh, the Hebrew is ambiguous, could be gnats, could be mosquitoes, annoying bug that bites. Think that. Yeah, whatever your worst bug is, like, that's what it is. So the, the dust becomes these gnats. They fly around, swarms rise up, and they bite not only the people this time, but the animals as well. And the magicians try and duplicate this sign like they had with the blood, like they had with the frogs, and they couldn't do it. And maybe the, r- the reason the magicians couldn't do it and the point of adding that to the story is that Pharaoh associated His power is associated with the river, with the life-giving Nile. And so water turning th- to blood, frogs coming out of the Nile, those are things in Pharaoh's wheelhouse. But the earth, the terra firma, the dust, that is not in his, how shall I say, for maybe medical people, it's not in his scope of practice. He doesn't have any say over the land. And God in this plague is saying, I am the God of land and the the Nile. I am sovereign over all of these things. I'm bigger than you, Pharaoh. By now, we're not surprised that Pharaoh's heart was still stubborn. In one sense, there's a similar message communicated in all the plagues. It's the superiority of God. On the other hand, I see some nuances that I think make working through the plagues three at a time over the next few weeks worth it, and I hope If you're enjoying this, good. If you're not, just stick with us a few weeks. (laughs) But the theme I see at work in these first three plagues is life and its source. Where does life come from? Pharaoh and the Egyptians believe they hold the unk, the key to life. But Yahweh shows them that he has supreme mastery over life, over the waters, and over dry land. A realm not even the Egyptians claim. And while this is an interesting story in its original context, I believe it has power to speak to us today. Because you and I are created by God, the life giver, we are hardwired, bent on, seeking that which gives us life. And that's good news. In our automatic state, you and I are on the search for things that give us life, for the one that gives us life. The bad news is that we're broken. So every one of us has a bit of a warped nature. I, if I'm the one to break that to you, I'm sorry. Um, but you probably know at the end of the day, I, I'm not a perfect person, right? And that's, that's true for every single human being. And so we've been broken, and sometimes we break others. Sometimes on accident, sometimes because we're just mean. Um, we live day by day knowing that we want life, But we seek that life sometimes in warped ways. A friend of mine picked some carrots growing in his yard several months ago. Um, He didn't plant these carrots, but he thought that seeds had blown over from a neighbor's yard. So he picked these carrots, washed them up, cut them up into a salad. A little while later, he was driving down Chuckanut Drive with his daughter in the car, and the road started moving, but his eyes weren't moving. And he pulled over, and thankfully someone found him and got him to the ER those carrots were poison hemlock. And I was like, what, dude? How did you not, because I've never seen, I didn't know we had that here, but I looked it up online, and they do look like long carrots. By the way, the difference is that carrots have little fibers. Poison hemlock don't, so if you ever see a smooth carrot, throw it away. (coughs) Okay. There are lots of things in life that appear good, that appear to be worth chasing after that appear to be life-giving but ultimately they don't lead to life they lead to death for example let's say that for you feeling secure is what gives you life maybe you grew up in a situation where you didn't have the basic necessities of food and shelter and clothing or safety or maybe your interior life feels so insecure out of control that you try and build a wall of security around you to feel in control so you save your money for a rainy day and rarely spend on anything spontaneous. You ensure everything. You play it safe in relationships. And you try and save your life by controlling every outcome. And maybe it works for a while, but there's this nagging feeling that you're never quite secure enough. And there's the annoying thought that maybe you're not really living life to the fullest, And every once in a while, you know we all have these moments, you ponder that there must be more to life. But then you got to go to work the next day, and it all seems so risky. And so you harden your heart, and you keep on trucking in the direction you were going. Maybe for you, being fully alive is making other people happy. It feels so good when you can share something of yourself, something you know, something you have, with someone else in need. And it's like a rush of pure joy in that instant, in an an ejection of life. But it's fleeting and it wears off. You make people happy, but you're not so sure that you're very happy. And you think, when I'm not busy doing for people, if I actually did slow down, who am I being? And every once in a while, maybe you know the times when you're at a spiritual retreat and you have that time that's a little longer than normal Maybe after a counseling session, you think, I've got to start living, darn it. But you start to wonder, if that's true, if I'm more than the sum of the people that I serve, I'm not sure how to start, I'm not sure how to begin. And before you know it, it's back to life the way it was, and you strengthen your heart, and you resolve to keep moving in the same old we struggle with the search for life, and most of us seek it in things that won't ultimately give us life. Well, even if you're a follower of Jesus, don't think, "Ah, oh, I'm immune to all this stuff. I found Jesus. Technically, he found you anyway. But anyway, um, you can still seek your life in professional identity or in politics or pleasure or being a super special Christian and doing and saying all the right things. I think we all know this. We pursue things that we're used to pursuing that feel good in the instant but don't give us life. And yet we get discouraged because, let's be honest, it's really hard to change. And what if I were to tell you that the way to find true life doesn't start in you trying to change your behavior? What if it doesn't start there with you striving to make a difference in your life? It's not simply about stopping what you're doing. The gospel, the good news is that in Jesus, God is the one who gives us life. And he offers you and I living water, true life. Jesus simply calls us to abide in him, to repent of our sin and to trust him to spend time with Him, to sit still. That's difficult to do, isn't it? To sit still with Him. And when we put our faith in Jesus and come to abide in Him, have a tight relationship with Him, He promises to fill us with life with living water, which is the Holy Spirit. And that's very good news. Jason, you could say amen. Yeah, come on now the more we spend time abiding in Jesus by prayerfully reading scripture and through obedience to him and through this, through worshiping with other people and through the sacrament of communion, the more he shapes us from the inside out. And the more we remain in him, the more he makes us new. So if you feel tired of the striving. If you feel hardened and lost, if you're thirsty for life, come to Jesus and drink your fill. Let me close this time with the words from John chapter 7, 37 and 38. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. I am so tired of being a shallow pool. I want to be a spring of living water, full of abundant life. Lord, hear our prayer. I believe that's probably the heart's desire of every living being. We want to be alive, and I thank you that you're a God who created us for life, um, that somewhere deep inside of us, you Put a homing beacon in us that has us seeking after life. Lord, bring to our attention those ways that our search for life has got us down the wrong track. And I pray for for grace and courage to come before you. To lay those things at your feet and to embrace you. To come to the fountain of life and to drink. Holy Spirit, fill us with Yourself, with living water. I pray for each one of us that we would be deep wells of life, that we wouldn't just be alive for our own sake, that we would be life-giving for those in our lives. Sources of hope and encouragement, not in enough, a not enough fake sort of happy when we're really sad kind of way, but in an authentic way that even in our suffering we hope in something greater.